Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we travel north to our place in the sun, in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 92, which begins with a rare smile from Max, and it ends with the compound dwellers driving north to the coast. The first shot of this minute is an incredibly short snippet of the gyro captain, just him finishing the movement of his goggles from over his eyes to his forehead. And then we cut right back to Max leaning against the tanker. But seeing the gyro captain sitting there and chomping on his cigar and smiling at Max, it kind of makes me wonder about that crash he had and how bad it looked and how minor it turned out to be. Well, I got nothing for you. It's one of those movie things Yeah, it's not surprising at all that he even showed up because he's a major enough character that that crash, it looks bad. But the plot armor that comes with a character of his level would dictate that it wouldn't be fatal. But at the same time, I I would think Dog would have had plot armor too. Yeah, it's weird to say the least because I'm also a little bit in the same boat that I'm not quite sure what to think of it because we saw him just trundling up the road yesterday and we didn't necessarily talk too much about, oh, that crash was so bad and now here he is showing up. And so I just dwelled on it and kept thinking, it's like, were we supposed to think that he was completely gone? Because he crashed and we just moved on. The scene was so kinetic and so fast that we didn't really sit there and dwell on it. Oh no, there goes the gyro captain. A, because we knew that he was coming back, but B, because it was the gyro captain. That crash scene, and I said this, I think, a couple times in the episode where we talked about it, was poorly edited. So whatever George Miller wanted us to think about the crash, that editing job didn't communicate anything to us. Like you said, it was quick and messy, and he was all over the place. How, from the footage that we were shown, are we supposed to understand whether or not the captain is okay, whether or not the gyrocopter itself is okay? No clue. Because it was poorly edited. Mm. So all we have to go on is the fact that here comes the gyro captain tooling up the road on a partially disabled gyrocopter. And he himself is just fine. So no, the crash wasn't that bad. Yeah. If I could go back in time and give editing notes to George Miller, I'd be like, okay, you can show the arrows hitting the gyrocopter and you can show him going down and then just do like a far off shot where he goes down from a distance. Like maybe he goes behind a hill or he's trailing smoke off into the distance, but don't do that goofy drop the gyrocopter from a crane and let it hit the ground nonsense because that looked really bad and the way that dummy was flung forward it's one of those things where you think okay that guy's got at least something broken but here no it's fine yeah so i think if they'd done it off screen i feel like it would have been a better reveal here I agree. Because as it stands, I think the worst thing that happened to the gyrocopter is that his top rotors got bent and that cigar he's chomping on got broken. Right. Well, something it did for him was it knocked a new set of teeth into his mouth. (laughs) Yeah, his teeth look really good in this shot. Yes, they do. And his nice teeth make him as a whole 
more handsome. This is a fantastic shot of him. He looks quite nice. Maybe when he crashed the gyrocopter and that dummy got thrown forward and it, when it hit the ground, maybe there was a bush that we couldn't see and he had his mouth open. And when he hit the ground, the bush acted like a toothbrush of some kind. And it, so it scrubbed <laughs> his teeth. Perhaps. Because you can use sticks as a natural toothbrush. Like you can fray it up and yeah, whatnot and use it to polish your teeth. It's not something that people usually do because regular toothbrushes are like a dollar a piece. But even so, that could be a really dumb explanation for why his teeth look better than they have in the past. Yes, it could. Speaking of people looking quite handsome, we also get a genuine smile from Max. Yeah, Mel Gibson is dirty in this scene. His hair is bedraggled, his face is covered in dirt, but we do get a legitimate smile out of him. All those times, we thought we saw smiles. Mm-hmm. Not the case. This one, totally the case. Yes, this one is real. And George Miller loves this shot. He talked about it in the audio commentary that this one shot of Mel just makes the whole thing, the deception, the plan that he wasn't clued in on, the fact that he was used as a decoy. This is Max just sloughing it off or something like that with this smile that goes across his face. That does seem like a good explanation because like we've talked about before, Max is not an emotional guy. So yeah, I think this is him internalizing what has happened and what everything has meant and going, okay, mm -hmm. moving on. I wonder about this smile of his because I feel like there are multiple reasons why he's smiling. There's the reason that you just mentioned that, you know, just laughing at circumstance, oh well, c'est la vie what's done is done. There's also the shot before the smile where the gyro captain takes his cigar out of his mouth and then he raises his eyebrows at Max. He does one of those maneuvers. I don't know if there's like a fancy term where when you look at someone and you do the eyebrow. He raises his eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> That's the term. <laughs> but it could be that Max is laughing at the gyro captain at the absurdity that of all of the people that were on this tanker that they were the two to survive. Mm -hmm. The two people that a few days ago had no affiliation or investment in this tanker and they're the ones that got out of it alive. It is a little absurd. Yeah, I think so. Like when you think of the people who deserved to live, obviously Warrior Woman who lived by this belief, Papagallo who had this grand plan, Zeta who was so devoted, just laughing at the cosmic comedy of it all. As Max smiles, he's looking down, and then we get a fade to black as he looks back up at the camera. And when we come back from this fade to black, we are seeing the feral child with his face in the back window of the bus gate. And the window is open, and he's looking straight at us. And the first and foremost thing that I notice before the ending narration even starts is the fact that there is no door on the back of that bus. No, there's not. There's just a rather large window that is currently propped open. My very first thought is, is that window big enough to get a barrel through to get them inside the bus? I guess so. I would certainly hope so, because we were so on a tear about this bus, about how to get in the bus and where are the openings and where are the doors and how big are the windows and how frustrating would it be if that window was ever so slightly too small to roll a 55-gallon drum through so they had to go around to the front and walk it through there or remove a window specific? Like, the idea of putting that many barrels in the back of that bus seems so frustrating and so stressful. Well, I agree that it sounds stressful, and I think 
no matter how the barrels got in through which opening, yeah, it was stressful. The atmosphere around the compound has been at maximum stress for at least a couple of days. And that's one reason why. It really explains why everyone was so on edge at the morning meeting where Papagallo was telling everybody, this is what we're going to do. Because a lot of those people spent all night not fixing up vehicles, but trying to finagle those barrels, whether they were full or empty, through the back window of a bus and then try and pass them over and arrange them around and mm -hmm. just, oh, what a nightmare. Yes. I say what a nightmare and there are people like out on the hillside getting tortured by raiders and that's... An actual nightmare. I'm just... Well, you can't make comparisons like that. Yeah. Because then nothing anybody ever does matters at all. Yeah. First world problems. Because there's always somebody worse. Like, whether or not there's somebody worse, your thing still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it sucked for them. But now their journey has begun. The great journey north to their place in the sun. This place where we're at right now with the convoy, with the compound dwellers and Max and everyone, this has got to be the... Powder River Bridge. And of course, they're going from the rendezvous point to the Sunshine Coast. They, as the narrator says, have begun their journey to their place in the sun. And the phrase, our place in the sun, it stood out to me. And I couldn't remember why. And so I typed in a place in the sun into Google and Google sent me over to the disambiguation page of Wikipedia. And so it turns out a place in the sun is the title for a minimum of four different songs by four different artists. Stevie Wonder has one called A Place in the Sun. That's different from Tim McGraw's A Place in the Sun, which is different from Pablo Cruz's A Place in the Sun, which is way different than A Place in the Sun by Lit. And they actually have an album <laughs> called A Place in the Sun. And that's, I think, where I recognized it. But A Place in the Sun is also the title for a movie starring Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. And apparently, and this is the surprising one, a Place in the Sun is the nickname for German international diplomacy that started in the 1890s when Germany began focusing on colonial expansion and naval reinforcement. It's also an idiom. <laughs> so if you were a colony of Germany, you had a place in the sun? Yeah. The idea that Germany would be similar to Britain in that the sun always shone on the German Empire like it did the British Empire. Okay, it's aspirational. It is very aspirational, and uh, there are definitely some that would look at Germany's aspirations for expansion as not a good thing, but that's another topic for another podcast that's more focused on actual history and not made-up history. <laughs> yes. As far as the idiom, A Place in the Sun, is concerned, it is meant to denote a good or lucky position, and so... Yes, the compound dwellers are going to the Sunshine Coast. They're going to a place in the sun, but it's also going to be a good or lucky position for them. Works on multiple levels, like an elevator. Yes. <laughs> Frick, like an elevator. <laughs> the narrator continues, Among us we found a new leader, the man who came from the sky, the gyro captain. This is the only instance that I've been able to find where the gyro captain is actually referred to as the gyro captain. Yeah, he's never referred to as anything. No pronouns. No, nope. No descriptors. Not even like a, hey, you, nothing. It's funny how that happens when you don't have a ton of people that are all in one place and the necessity to call out one single person. Because a lot of the interactions that we see with the gyro captain, if Max is going to talk to him or if someone is going to talk to him, they're just going to walk up and start talking. It's not like they need to pull him out of a crowd first and say, hey, tall guy with cat. 
because then in the credits he'd probably be just called tall guy with hat yeah thinking about i mean obviously he's listed in the credits as the gyro captain because he's referred to once as the gyro captain but if the narrator who we know is the grown-up into manhood feral child feral child wouldn't know his name yeah during this narration he really didn't need to call him the gyro captain he could have called him by his name And actually, he probably should have called him by his name because he's a figure that the community that the narrator's talking to would know. That is a really good point because after Papagallo, the gyro captain became the next leader. If you were recounting the personal history of the Great Northern Tribe and he didn't mention the gyro captain's actual name, I envision that as someone teaching U.S. history and just referring to Thomas Jefferson as the Constitution writer or referring to George Washington as our general, using a generic descriptor to describe someone who is very important in the later history. I wonder if it's because in the context of this specific story, he is only the gyro captain. He has not become the leader yet. So at this point, he is not the leader. Mm -hmm. He is only the gyro captain who did these things during this story. So the Thomas Jefferson thing, if we were telling a story about the constitution being written, we would only refer to him as a constitution writer not everything else that he did after the Constitution was written. Yeah. But that being said, he still has a name. Like, we wouldn't call Thomas Jefferson Constitution Writer. We call him Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. The Constitution Writer. Maybe... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe this is just the feral child not necessarily teaching a grand history lesson, but just, like, telling it for entertainment purposes. Because, I mean, they don't have television in the post-apocalypse, so they gotta be able to entertain somebody. Right, they tell stories. Yep, my favorite instance of people in a post-apocalyptic setting telling stories to entertain themselves. What? Reign of Fire. Oh, I thought you were going to say Beyond Thunderdome. Nope. What? Because. Heresy. In Reign of Fire. I'm going to look up, look it up real quick so I can remember who's who. Reign of Fire. It'll probably come to me once you start describing it, but I don't recognize that. In Reign of Fire, Christian Bale plays an English guy who is more or less the leader of a surviving castle of people because dragons are real and they have ravaged the world because dragons in that universe eat ash and so they just burn everything and then eat the ash and so it's really hard for people to survive. Anyway, post-apocalyptic setting because of dragons. Matthew McConaughey is in it as well. He's a crazy dude with a beard and an axe and whatever. Anyway, Christian Bale has got this room full of kids and he is telling them this crazy story about these magical knights who are fighting together and one of them cuts the hand off the other and then through his dark and scary mask, reveals that he is the father of the other one. And all the kids scream. And he's telling them the story of the Empire Strikes Back. But it's him and this other person acting it out. Oh my gosh. Seriously? Mm -hmm. Seriously. So it might be one of those situations where the feral child is telling it for dramatic or entertaining effect instead of treating it as a history lesson. I like the idea that he is telling an entertaining story to children because the way that he says the man who came from the sky, the gyro captain, that's 
childlike phrasing. A grown adult with the maturity and intelligence to be the leader of a tribe wouldn't genuinely think that this man just came out of the sky. He arrived via the sky yeah. in his flying machine, but he didn't come from the sky. So that wording seems a little childish. Yeah. So I like the idea that he is telling this to a group of children. Yeah, it makes it sound more dramatic and fanciful. So perhaps only identifying the future leader and the story listener's past leader as the gyro captain creates maybe a mystique around the history of that previous leader. Hmm. That not only did he lead the tribe to success, he also came from the sky and he saved us. Along with the Road Warrior. Yeah. As the narrator is talking about how they found a new leader, we are looking at the gyro captain driving the bus. Arky's right there next to him, and then we pan down the side of the bus. But before we move beyond Arky Whitley and Bruce Spence here, Arky starts off looking out the front of the bus, but then as the camera moves past, she turns to look at the gyro captain, and she is just gaga yes the gyro captain it's so cute (laughs) i remember a story i'm not sure i ever told you this but it was i think very soon after we were married and i was still working at crate and barrel and you had stopped at work something maybe like brought me lunch or something like that and i introduced you to a few of my co-workers and after you left they said to me it was so cute said that they could tell how much you loved me From the way that you looked at me. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that was really sweet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember that story. Yeah. So it's the same thing. You can tell how much she likes him by the way she looks at him. Mm -hmm. And then as we go down the length of the bus, we see a couple more characters. You can see the curmudgeon and Big Rebecca's in there and the big white-haired dude that might have been a Timbo or a Derek. I don't know. Not quite sure. (laughs) But everyone's just hanging out in the back of the bus. Yeah, and I think they're singing, which is lovely. Yeah. We had a discussion previously about how well people got along amongst the compound. We've had lots of theories about how this particular group came to be together, and none of those theories were, oh, this was a group of friends that decided to survive the apocalypse together. Never was that a theory. These are a group of disparate people who may or may not actually get along. So it's very nice to see at least a few of them getting along very, very well. It makes me wonder how people in the other vehicles are getting along. And I don't know why I just thought of Twister. Probably because it's a caravan of people. Okay, I thought you were talking about the game. No, 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 no. I'm thinking about the movie with, is it Pullman or Paxton? Oh, well, I think it's Paxton. Yeah. Okay. So you've got Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt. They're in one vehicle and there's like four or five vehicles in their little train of people and you've got Philip Seymour Hoffman and a couple of folks and everyone's got radios and they're all like radioing back and forth and having fun and singing and have got their radios going and everyone's doing something different but they're all more or less doing it all the same so I like to think that's kind of how this caravan is that everyone is feeling really good about not being killed by raiders and finally being on their way to the Sunshine Coast. <laughs> it reminds me of, I think it was a college humor video that went around a couple weeks ago, uh-huh. where it's from the point of view of the people who got stuck in the not fun car. Oh. The people in the fun car are having so much fun. They have cake, they have fireworks, they're having dance parties, they're having the best time. And then there's two people stuck in the not fun car, and they're having a terrible time <laughs> and talking about how they didn't want cake anyways. <laughs> 
<laughs> Side note, Twister also has Alan Ruck, who is, what's his name from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh, Cameron Fry. Cameron Fry. So the narrator continues, And just as Papagallo had planned, we traveled far beyond the reach of men on machines. The juice, the precious juice, was hidden in the vehicles. Which makes it sound like they had a really easy time when they got to Sunshine Coast. Yeah, I have my doubts about the phrase that they made it beyond the reach of men on machines. Like, you are men on machines. <laughs> Therefore, other men on machines could reach you. They just chose not to. Mm -hmm. Maybe when they got to Sunshine Coast, they had to deal with a different sort of gang, like a gang that rode horses. So they got beyond the reach of men on machines, but they then had to deal with men on horses. I think camels might be more accurate. Yeah. I don't think there's... Well, I mean, I remember looking at the demographics and makeup of the Sunshine Coast area. Yeah. And it seems rather well-to-do, so there might be <gasps> yuppies that oh. had horses, and so now they become a roving cavalry to protect their fancy golf courses. <laughs> That seems plausible. Mm -hmm. But going back to that end part about how the juice, the precious juice, was hidden in the vehicles, this is supposed to be a surprising reveal to us. I guess so. I'm not sure what George Miller thought we would think about where the gas was if it wasn't in the tanker. Yeah. It's one of those things where we just had it revealed to us that the tanker was full of sand. Like, watching this movie for the first time... You get through this chase, and maybe you don't notice the sand pouring out of the low spout. Yeah, I never did. You get to the end of the chase, the tanker goes over, it's full of sand. Oh no, where's the fuel? And I guess if you don't stop for a moment and be like, well, where else could the fuel be but in the vehicles? And then they say, oh, the fuel was in the vehicles. And it's like, okay, yep, yeah, it is. One other thing is that we have changed storytelling styles. There's a big difference between when you're watching a movie and when you're reading a book. The movie shows us things, doesn't have to say it out loud. That's a hallmark of George Miller's. He just shows us stuff. He doesn't say much at all. Yeah. But since we've transitioned back to a storyteller telling a story. Wow. Storyteller telling a story. Yeah. That's special. But now that we've transitioned back to his to a storyteller, he has to say things explicitly again. Right. Like... The fuel was in the cars the whole time. This is one of those things where if we didn't have the visual of the fuel tanks sitting in the bus, if we just had like a wide shot where it didn't focus on those things and he said the fuel was in the vehicles, then we could be like, oh yeah, sounds good. But where we're showed the gas tanks and then we're told it seems a little redundant to me. I don't know. It is presented like a reveal. When it's not. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe some people get a kick out of it. Maybe we've had our heads in this too long. Yeah. Maybe we're jaded. <laughs> <laughs> what? Us? Never. <laughs> From the shot that we're looking at, we've tracked along the length of the bus. We see the barrels full of fuel with the little flammable danger sticker on it. We fade over to another shot of the feral child with his head in the back window. Uh, does this shot look a little odd to you? I always thought the feral child was laying down in this shot. It's the really? way his hair is splayed straight out. Oh, okay. It looks like he is laying down, but his hair is just so windswept to the extreme it's voluminous. that it's standing straight out. Yeah. Okay, I can see I can see what you're talking about now. Yeah. So as we see the feral child again, the narrator continues, As for me, I grew to manhood. In the fullness of time, I became the leader, the chief of the great northern tribe. And I assume somewhere in there he learned to talk. Well, yeah. 
<laughs> I mentioned a while ago now that my headcanon is that the gyro captain and Arky adopted him as their own, which is why he became the next chief in the fullness of time. It was passed down, you know, father to son. Mm-hmm. So I like to imagine that Arky taught him to talk. I wonder if Arky ever gave the feral child guff about the whole you didn't get on the bus, you got on the tanker, and you almost died thing. Because if the feral child had just not fought Arky, then would much have changed if the feral child hadn't been on the rig? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Because the only thing the feral child really does is he runs away from the raiders, gets pulled into the cab. At one point, he grabs Max's gun and beats on Bear Claw Mohawk with it a little bit. And then he crawls out onto the hood to get screamed at by Wes. And that's it. Right. There's no one linchpin moment for the feral child being on the rig. Nope. So I bet he gets guff about that from Arky. Well, if he does, it would have already happened. He would have been chastised as soon as he returned to Arky and the rest of the compound dwellers. She would have chastised him right then and there. Oh, what a shame we missed that. Mm. We fade to a really nice wide shot of the outback. I would guess at sunset because they said wait till sunset and then move on. But the caravan is driving just through the brush in a nice orderly line and they're kicking up a really lazy cloud of dust and I just really like it. It would make sense to drive along the roads, but it's more visually pleasing to see it laid out like this and who's to say that the roads that they could be taking are in a good enough condition a lot of the roads that we've seen so far that aren't dirt roads just plain old simple dirt roads are in pretty good condition and i find that a little hard to believe Mm. i find the paved roads being covered in debris right correct in a way yes the dirt roads I guess it makes sense that they're just not as cluttered. And I guess the whole idea of them driving through the brush like this is more tactical, like they'll run into fewer people that way. But whether it's faster or slower, it looks nice. For yes, sure. it does. The last shot that we get this minute is a fade to Max standing up on a ridge next to the lone wolf. And he's, I'm assuming, watching them go. Yeah, this is... I was going to say a reused shot, but it's not reused. It's used as a bookend. Mm -hmm. It's the same exact shot that we saw way, way, way back in the very, very beginning. I think it was minute two. Yes. as It's actually the first shot of the movie after the opening credits. So we end the movie in the same place that we started the movie, with the road warrior and the caravan parting ways. Hmm. It's like the binding on a book. Like the first time we saw it, that was the front cover, and now we're seeing it again. It's the back cover. Huh, interesting analogy, because generally speaking, the front cover always looks better Mm -hmm. than the back cover, because the back cover is just the back cover. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened here. It's not the exact same footage. It's the same shots, but the footage in the front of the movie looks better. Yeah. And it's better lighting. It, it, I think it's maybe developed differently. Yeah. Isn't there also a dual layering effect where something is more opaque Yes, there is some, like, roiling clouds yeah. type stuff going on over it. So maybe they had to brighten up the footage for those two to work together, Yeah, one going over the other. But I'm glad that you looked that up because as we're going to see tomorrow, this shot here fades out to the credits. And so where this shot is the one where you get opening credits and then fade into this... Mm-hmm. It's a bit more mirroring. And actually, I'm not sure if it made it in. I might have deleted it because it was a failed theory. Whether or not it made it in, I had the idea that maybe 
the shot from the opening where there's crosses might actually have taken place at the rendezvous. Yeah. That they were burying their dead before going on to the coast. Going back and looking at the prologue again, I think I had that possibility in my head because this shot is duplicated. Yeah. Hmm. The narrator goes on to specifically mention Max. He says, and the road warrior, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now, dot, dot, dot. Because the minute cuts right off in the middle of the sentence. So we're going to stop for now. And we're going to come in tomorrow and pick up where the narrator left off, talk a little bit more about Max, and then we're going to pull out the screenplay and talk about how things were originally imagined to be very different. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 90 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.